Welcome to The Torch from Entrepreneurs for Impact, where we interview CEOs, founders, and investors focused on building companies that tackle climate change. We cover lessons learned from failures and successes, insights into funding business growth, book recommendations, favorite podcasts, and much more. My name is Chris Wedding. I'm a former private equity investor, investment banker, founder, and professor, all focused on climate investment and innovation. I'm also the founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, where we support climate CEOs with executive roundtables, peer-to-peer advisory, and investor intelligence because we believe in three things. Number one, businesses grow when people grow. Number two, there's no reason for things to be so lonely at the top. And number three, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong bleeping room. So grab your favorite beverage or hop in the car for that commute and let's dive in. We are here with Derek Hanley, founder of Era Ventures, A-E-R-A, for for this episode of The Climate Torch. And Derek, as we chatted maybe 10 days ago and before hitting uh, record, I'm pretty sure we could chat for a couple hours on many topics under the sun. But anyway, we'll, we'll see what we can cover in, in 40, uh, 40 minutes or so. I know it's uh, bright and early on the other side of the world. I'm glad you got your cup of something delicious and nice to see your smiling face again. You too, a cup of tea. Yeah, and it's about okay. eight o'clock in New Zealand. There you go, there you go, not, not too bad, not too bad. I think our prior call was worse. Uh, yeah, that's true. Was worse for you, yeah. Um, well, but you know, j- just as a fun aside, totally unrelated to all the great things we're going to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're a Ted Lasso watcher by chance, uh, Derek. No. Okay. Well, it you 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 will like it. Um, it is a feel good comedy that has taken at least America, hopefully by storm, a, a delightful benevolent storm. Anyway, um, comedy this football coach, but he's in the UK and I bring it up because of the reference to tea and, and clearly as an American drinking British tea, he keeps thinking like, he's like, are you guys serious? Like, do do you really like this? It's like garbage water, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I say that. That's funny. Yeah, I love tea. And I also got to love filtered coffee from all my years in America. Yeah. Um, So I'm, I'm equally happy in both camps. Yeah, yeah, Am- ambidextrous. Um, I say that as I <laughs> as I drink like cold yerba mate, which many folks would say tastes like an ashtray. But um, <laughs> anyway, we do, we we digress on on healthy tea. Well, Eric, I'm sorry, Derek. Rather, um, Eric, where'd that come from, Derek? Uh, um, so let, let's start from the top. Uh, era Era Venture Capital is part of your story, but it's just a a part of your story. But let, maybe let's start there. Era VC. You know what? What's your focus? What do some of your maybe portfolio companies uh, look like, and what we'll kind of go from go from there? Yeah. Sure. Era Era Venture Fund at the moment, Era VC is really focused heavily on climate. Uh, we, I think, as a as a firm and as an organization, as we think about the next 10, 20 years, we really are a sustainability driven investor. So a long term vision around really holistic. Um, investing across sustainability spectrum. Right now, the venture firm is focused on deep technology, 
uh, particularly radical technologies to reverse climate change. But we also do invest in what we call kind of frontier breakthroughs for humanity, which are on the health side, the human well-being side, the human, even the human spirit side. So we include things like space and exploration and things that are kind of out of the box that reflect the spirit of uh, humanity to continue to grow and explore and improve uh, uh, the state of the world, but also what it means to be alive. So that's the, that's the collection of things that we do at the moment. But right now in this window ahead of us, we have continued to dial up our bias towards climate. Um, we made our first investment in climate tech in 2017 and we haven't stopped and we will, you know, we don't think that's something that's going to be solved in the next year or two. So I, I think we'll be investing in that space for a very long time. Wait a minute. Uh, you can't solve it in a year. Come on. Man. <laughs> I yeah, thought exactly. you were like this uh, serial entrepreneur and all these things. Come on. Right. Exactly. We can solve <laughs> all of them this year. <laughs> you, uh, you, you mentioned um, something along the lines of, you know, radical uh, uh, technology. Maybe can you give a, you know, a couple of samples uh, of, of radical technology in the climate or, or beyond, but certainly climate space. Yeah. For, for uh, sure. So we've done a number of, so we have a number of strands that we look at at the moment. They continually evolve. We've done a, a lot of investments in the future of food. So that might be cell-based <clears throat> food, uh, plant-based food, hybrids, anything that's kind of empowering this, this new space of how we eat and how we grow food. Uh, we've done a number of deals in carbon capture, utilization and recycling. So companies that uh, like Noya or 12, which are attempting to extract carbon from certain uh, off gases or in the air and create something useful out of it. Um, we are looking at, we have done deals in synthetic biology and different technologies that are finding new ways to build the building blocks of this world. So our first deal was a company called Solugen, which is essentially creating chemicals from plants and air, as opposed to from the building blocks of fossil fuels. And those kinds of things we think are they are indicative of the remaking of the world that's ahead of us. So rethinking how we make the world that, that surrounds us and moving from a fossil fuels based world to a, a, new, a new world. And I think the last 20 years that the general zeitgeist has understood that fossil fuels power things, they power flight, they power transport, they power energy. And we're trying to get off that, but maybe what's less understood is they also are the building blocks of the makeup of everything, chemicals, plastics. Um, they express when we create cement, which you know is the largest material, man-made material that exists in the planet. And so I think we're on the cusp of moving into this remaking of the world, not just how we use the world and how we operate in it. And so we're excited about investing in anything that's that's uh, pioneering that. Yeah, yeah, um, hooray. Uh, you mentioned Noya. Uh, you know, Josh uh, was a guest on the Climate Torch a while back. had a great had a great chat. What a what a good dude, and love love what they're up to. I can I can see why that was appealing uh, to you guys. And I also wrote down uh, Solugen. Um, could I could I like tee up a little bragging here uh, for you to to uh, to respond to? So some, some pretty nice sure. recent headlines um, from this company, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. They. So I think. 
you know, it's, it's tough. I don't think investors should brag about these kinds of things, but you can get proud yeah. when you see something happen that is what you want to see happen more of in the world. And they've just raised a $350 million round by, you know, the, what we would think is the, the bluest of blue chip type investors, Temasek, uh, the Singapore government, um, and Bailey Gifford, you know, long-term, really visionary, large-scale investors to scale up their model and their vision to decarbonize the chemicals industry. Um, I'm super conscious that, you know, obviously founders build companies like I have in the past, tried, uh, built many and um, helped a lot of people build companies and investors are just, you know, turning keys in certain locks to help those founders accelerate and achieve their goals. So for us, it's amazing as a, as a young fund, you know, only four years in uh, our first deal in climate uh, to see a company take off like that is amazing. And it's inspiring for us to continue to look for companies like that. It's also, I think, inspiring for other companies that join our portfolio to see what's possible and that the speed and pace of, of acceleration in this space can be just as fast as, you know, what other people have seen in SaaS or social media or other sectors that seem to be more scalable because they're digital. Uh, so, yeah, we're super excited. And in a lot of ways, I think it's just the beginning for a company like that. Um, I do believe a company like that could exist for a generation or more, just like the companies that built the fabric of how we build the built world now have lasted for over a century. What Solugen does is reinventing things that have existed since the 1800s, the way things have been done. And uh, we're now on the cusp of reimagining those things. And so there's no reason a company like that couldn't be around for many generations. Well, it, it, it is exciting. And I, I, uh, I recognize your prior comment when you started this off of, well, you know, investors not super keen to brag on things like this. It, it, uh, it is great news, no doubt. Um, I, I reflect back when I was in private equity and sometimes uh, newer members would, 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 would want to get excited when we, when we um, made an investment uh, in, a, in a company or a project. And our CEO was very quick to say, oh no, you do not celebrate when you make an investment. You celebrate when you exit an investment at the whatever, 2X and 30% you know, IRR. So I, I, I totally hear that. Um, you know, j just on the era uh, venture side of things, like what, what is the right stage of company? Let's say, you know, as, as entrepreneurs who are surely listening, um, what kind of check sizes do you like to write? You know, is there follow on or is that someone else's kind of, you know, purview? Yeah. What is it right now? Like? Yeah. yeah, right now we're really focused on seed as we have been, we have experimented over the last few years in different places of the journey of an entrepreneur, but seed is really our special uh, entry point, uh, which means we need to start meeting people a little bit earlier. Like we need to start meeting founders that are pre-seed-ish. And we may do that in the next uh, you know, phase of our journey, but really, really wanna be a seed. So if a company's raising a few million and we're able to participate maybe for half a million or a million, that's kind of where we'd wanna be. Uh, we would then follow on and hope to follow on with, with the best of those companies into Series A, which we're really set up to do uh, as well. That could be, you know, one to three million or something like that. Um, and then we will have other vehicles that can continue to follow a company uh, with the investors that we've got and the community of families and investors that have supported us. Um, but that's essentially, for the next few years, that's going to be our focus. Uh, I think as this whole space and everything in this world as people build climate tech ventures continues to explode. Um, there is so much scope over the coming years to create other types of vehicles to support companies at different stages. 
And there may end up being also lots of different types of funding, as we've seen in other aspects of startups where you have cash flow funding and mm -hmm. other ways in which inv investments can be made that don't dilute founders. So there's lots of innovation that can take place. Um, but for now, that's where we're really focused. Yeah, it's super helpful and really practical, again, for the entrepreneurs listening. So thanks for kind of walking through that in a, in a, in a detailed way. I also think it's interesting how you bring up uh, other kinds of funding uh, like cash flow financing, non-dilutive, you know, funding where you have, you know, recurring revenue, you know, creditworthy offtakers and all the rest. Uh, pr pretty uncommon in the corporate. Well, it's not uncommon for kind of whatever medium-sized large businesses uh, to have that kind of financing. Much, much more unusual, I think, for uh, the startup landscape. And in a, in a way, not uncommon for project finance, right? You think about whatever, solar projects, you got, you know, recurring revenue, predictable revenue. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's a fun kind of um, thread to pull on at some point later. What, what will follow on rounds of venture funding look like? And, and, and probably it, it won't just be the predictable, you know, pre-seed, seed, series, series fill in the blank, right? To right, exit. well, I mean, there's companies like Pipe and Clearbank yep. that are in reinventing the way you might take uh, funding. And I think that will apply everywhere, everywhere where it makes sense that will emerge. And so a traditional venture fund needs to make, you know, not watch out, but landscape is definitely changing. And as a, as a founder, as having someone, you know, having built companies, I would be looking at all ways to raise money that doesn't necessarily dilute the cap table. Um, obviously in this space, there are also emerging, you know, there's lots of other types of capital that you wouldn't get if you're building like just a SaaS company uh, for e-commerce where there are grants and increasing amounts of philanthropy and lots of capital coming in from all over the place to address the climate issues that we've got. So, um, you know, companies like 12, which we mentioned earlier, they did have a lot of grant funding to get them to, to the where they got to until they raised their whatever it was, $58 million Series A a few months ago. And I think some of that stuff helps bridge the gap where while technology is matching the market, and you may argue that some of those companies may not have survived if they didn't have that kind of bridge until the timing of where society kind of connected with where their vision was. A lot of companies are so visionary that they need to survive just to meet the market. Mm. And um, I think you've got to look at all sources of funding to, to get that bridge. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it shows the kind of catalytic nature of, you know, government often, you know, research-based uh, uh, funding or, or philanthropic funding uh, to your point, to to leverage right mainstream larger amounts of uh, of private capital. I wonder, you know, Derek, if you want to comment on, um, you know, parts of the climate landscape, either tech or project or otherwise, that feel, you know, more uh, blue sky, or in contrast, you know, feel uh, pretty crowded or pretty confused, um, competitive. Pick your Pick your agenda. Well, definitely since we started investing in food a few years ago, and we were not, we were by no means not, you know, super early, 2017 or whenever it was, um, that that space has exploded. Every continent, every country, there are companies working on the future of food now in every every aspect of it. Cell-based, plant-based, ingredients-based, uh, you know, materials companies, um, texture companies, everything. So that space is harder and harder to navigate. Uh, it's good. It's great that there's so many founders moving in this space. 
Um, you know, our view is there's there will be clear winners in particular niches, and there also will be geographical winners because you know we all eat differently, we all cook differently. Mm. Um, it's not just about what the end product is; it's how you cook and how you treat whatever uh, meat that you previously cooked. That place is a little challenging right now. I think if you were new and trying to invest in that space, you'd have to have something very special, unique as to how you were going to tackle it. Um, the carbon capture and utilization space seems to be something that's emerging and there's all sorts of interesting ways to address it. And they range from, uh, you know, technologies like NOI that can be installed on existing equipment to capture carbon and then reuse it in some form. Uh, to sinking carbon, like a seaweed company, like something like a FICOS, which is essentially, well, we're going down the avenue of just, just storing it. And, you know, it's a whole spectrum from turning it into a circular asset uh, to just locking it away. Um, and there, are, I think that will continue to proliferate, proliferate with lots of different ways in which people approach it. And again, it might be quite local, geographically, regionally, with local carbon credit markets and things like that. Uh, we'll continue to look uh, a lot of that. The space that I think is blue sky and most exciting, but still I'm trying to, you know, I think with a lot of us who are not from the industry grappling our heads, uh, you know, to get around is heavy industry. So I'm really excited about that because the problem is so big and, you know, cement, uh, plastic, steel, um, those chemicals, which is obviously where Solugen started. I think that's where there's enormous opportunity and we're looking for interesting companies in, in that space, you know, concrete and cement is something that we're really passionate about at the moment. And I hope to find great companies doing amazing things there. And again, there's a number of ways to tackle that problem, uh, which is related to how the cement's made, which is this limestone process, which creates a lot of uh, CO2, how the process is heated and powered, which creates a whole other set of uh, emissions and um, how, uh, you know, how how the material is used in the, in the built world you know can it be used differently can you change rules to enable uh differently made up composition of cement to be used in different ways things like that so we're i'm excited about uh, those those areas as well and one thing that i'm more recently looking at is uh where the intersection of climate and fintech is so i think okay we have a banking system we have a finance system that is trying to uh turn the ship to meet climate and I'm imagining, I'm starting to dream up that maybe people might build entirely new banking institutions or finance institutions that are climate first. And they were built from the ground up for a sustainable world. And we've seen an amazing evolution of fintechs, neobanks, all sorts of things happen in the last 10 years in that space. But not many of them are climate or sustainability first. They're just built to improve the banking experience or the finance experience. So that space is also, I think, really interesting uh, don't know what may come out of it, but really fascinated to see what might happen. Yeah, I wonder, or maybe I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, but I, I was exci excited to see the New Energy Nexus, uh, you know, folks put out this, you know, pretty pretty early, I guess, you know, combination of climate and fintech report, you know, maybe a year or so ago, and you know, pretty exciting to read through it, all the companies and what they're up to, and and gosh, imagine what's evolved even since yeah. that report has been produced. So you know. Good, good for them for kind of tracking it and, and well, I think what, else, a, what else. Yeah, I think else. they sent an email out yesterday about like a new cohort of activity mm -hmm. that's going on. I haven't had a chance to look at it, but um, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll put a link in the transcript around what the New Energy Nexus uh, folks are up to. 
Well, may, maybe let's let's broaden a little bit, uh, uh, Derek. I mean, first of all, I, I agree with that last point. The heavy industry pieces are pretty hard to figure out and not just one kind of angle of attack uh, to get them to be lower carbon. So, so look, because it's hard, right? Probably more opportunity, the easier, the easier things, you know, are the first ones to be to be tackled with NUCOs. So let, let's let's go back to kind of where uh, where era uh, adventures came from. Can can you talk about that, that history, if you will? Yes, uh, I definitely can. So my my life kind of looks like as an adult anyway. Two halves, you know, out of university, I started companies pretty much immediately within a few months of graduating, I started my first companies and spent the first 10 years building, building them. Mostly it was one company that was at the nexus of a different transition that the world underwent, which was, you know, the transition from the web to mobile. Mm. And similarly looking at, you know, where are the, where is the world changing? And how do you build something on top of a trend that is either going to happen or must happen? Uh, that was my first experience being part of something that was really nascent and not believed and then became overwhelmingly obvious. Um, and I built a company that, that helped a lot of brands around the world make that transition. And I ended up sell, selling it, um, you know, about nine years after starting it. And that in the, in the last recession, the big recession around 2009 is when I really started to question in my own mind what, what the point of building companies was. Uh, you know, was technology good enough? Was innovation good enough? Was wealth or building a team good enough? And, you know, I, I really had new answers. And my answers were that the companies or anything that I was involved in needed to solve problems that I would think are like real problems, like the problems of humanity, of society, of the environment, which at that time I didn't know anything about. So that became the beginning of my second chapter of the last 10 years, where I basically ended up, you know, spending my entire life, everything I do now is related to some social or environmental cause or issue. Uh, and a few years after we sold the company, uh, I had spent a few years, um, you know, being in the privileged position to build a, an alliance of different CEOs around the world who were tackling with that same question, but on a different scale, like on a macro scale, like what is the CEO of Unilever's view on how does Unilever play a role in, as it intersects with, let's say, the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And in building that team, I had partnered with one of my own childhood heroes, Richard Branson, who was asking that same question. What is the responsibility of large scale business leaders to help transitions with these issues? Um, and that became my boot camp, like an MBA in sustainability, climate, uh, impact investing, those kinds of things. Uh, in 2012, my wife and I then set up a small charitable trust. We didn't know what to call it. We ended up calling it ERA. Uh, it means exactly what, how it sounds like it's the Latin word for ERA. It's the root word for our time, our generation. And we wanted to set up a foundation that wasn't, you know, the Hanley Foundation. It was something that was representative of a question that we would always want to ask, whether we were 30 or 100 or even after we've died. And we wanted to work on things that were generational. Uh, so the foundation came first. And then we spun out different projects. And the Venture Fund is a project of the foundation. So in itself, it's a unique genesis story uh, to build a venture capital fund from a charitable trust, but the mission obviously was always to uh, to do things around sustainability and, and climate, and that's that's how it began. Well, um, the way you phrase that of hey, look, you know, built lots of companies, you know, uh, several did did really well, and had had the opportunity to kind of step back and and ask yourself, 
kind of like, what's the point, right? Um, uh, what, what's the point of like, as in like, what, what do I do next? And, um, well, the I'm thing was actually, the yeah. thing was actually, I asked that question, not at the point of success. I actually mm. asked it at the lowest point of despair, which was basically mm. December, 20, 2008, when mm. we just laid off about 80 people and had closed like three offices and it looked like by March, we'd be out of business. So at that point, it was more like an existential question. It's like, if that happens, what does all this mean? So it's really funny because it didn't happen after that. It happened in the middle of being at the bottom of everything going, hmm, this looks like the last nine years is going to go down and smoke and I'm going to end up with kind of nothing. And my whole identity and reputation was tied up in this particular company. It's like, wait a minute, is this, is this how it goes? Is this what it's meant to be? Would I do this again for this cause? And that was what the trigger was. And actually, that's what gave me the clarity to act really calmly in that, I mean, I don't know if anyone listening remembers the stress of August, September, October, 2008. Oh yeah, It was frightening, right? People, when they lost a job, had no idea when they'd get another one. And there was no capital, there was no money, people stopped supporting everything. So a lot of people were looking around going, wow, what happens for the next couple of years? And the beauty of that for me was it sparked this awakening to say, oh, this is where I should be going. No matter what happens here, I'll do my best in this situation. But if I get out of the situation, I'm going this direction, no matter what. Mm. And uh, it was a beautiful thing, actually. Well, I'm really glad you, uh, you made that distinction, right? For when you had this realization. Uh, I, I would also just uh, second the feeling of, of great stress and uncertainty in 0809. Okay. I was... So I was in private equity and we were also real estate focused. And those were two, two really hard hit areas. And we had also extended to kind of almost be master project developers. So we had a lot of headcount. And for about a year, I'd, I'd go to work and in the morning, all right, honey, I'll see you in many hours. And uh, I may get fired today. Love you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it worked out and didn't, but, but very stressful. So I, I hear that. Um, it's amazing what realizations we have. I think, in fact, that was part of what kicked me into the entrepreneurship space to want to create my own uh, future versus depend on it uh, through some other, uh, you know, employer or venture. Um, well, uh, what I was going to say was, and this is this is maybe less relevant now, but whether it's the highs, the high moment you sold a company and and hooray it worked out, or or the lowest moment. I mean, th th those can be great points to have the clarity that you now have to focus your energies right here. Uh, I wonder if, if that could be a, 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 um, a, a, a hack for those that are not at highs or lows to be like, hey, th these are the kinds of insights that occur at highs and lows. Maybe not take my word for it, but please don't, you don't have to go through these, these lows to also realize the importance of things beyond just attack a team, et cetera. Now, easy to say, uh, I think probably it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a visceral realization. So probably best, most powerfully experienced. Yeah, I think, Chris, I don't know. I think it really is, you know, but I think you need the curiosity to somehow get yourself in these situations where something visceral will happen. Um, and I don't think you can prescribe it. It's like, you can't describe, uh, a meal by just, you know, you can't, you don't know what the meal tastes like just by reading a menu. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult um, to 
replicate these experiences without these things actually happening. Uh, it can dawn on you in a different way if you spend time with other people who are doing different things, who kind of shed light on it, on things for you, which enlighten, oh, wow, that's an amazing thing. I'd never thought about that. But somehow people have to have their own space in their world to experience something that somehow lights go on or off. And sometimes I think often those are brought through crisis, right? Where something happens in your own life or something happens to someone close or dear to you or a city or some project that you're involved in. It's in a moment for, for real questioning and maybe uh, a lot of people just move forward and just push through or actually that space there, that gap is where there's a lot of value to just pause the world and say, what's happening in this gap? And should I rethink any of my assumptions about who I am or what I'm trying to you know, be in the world? And equally at the highs, and I think many founders, and I'm sure you've talked to tons, when they sell a company, whether it's small or giant, uh, there is something that happens after that. And often it's a hollowness and there's a question, what is this about and what am I meant to do next? And I thought this was gonna feel different. And I think again, that's an opportunity and I think a lot of founders do take that and say, oh, I want to do things differently. I want to contribute to problems and I want to help solve them. Um, and those little windows are things that you can easily run past and just push through. But if you take the opportunity to pause and see what's going on within them, and I guess lots of people probably have done that through COVID as well with all the disruption. Uh, I think those moments are really, really valuable and you just can't read them from a book. There are things that are happening in and around you. Yeah, I think that's well said. Yeah, if my memory serves correct from from being in Japan, the actual, I think the, the, the letters, the, the kanji, the, the Chinese characters that make up the word crisis in Japanese, I think they represent danger and opportunity, perhaps. It's been a while since I was there. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, th th this may be a fun place to also pivot in this conversation to other things that matter to, to you and, and to me, but you, you talked about, uh, look, reflection in so many words. Um, you know, I think, I think it's interesting, and I was excited to hear you are working towards a, a master's in religion right now. You, you've also had, and I think we're looking to re revamp this wiser uh, conversations. Um, maybe just kind of talk more about um, the, the role of, you know, pick your term, right? Um, meditation or mindfulness or spirituality or whatnot, it, it, the role in uh, the, let's say the path of an entrepreneur, perhaps, yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, I think, you know, I'm not sure if, if how this intersects uh, with the path of an entrepreneur always, but for me, one of the things that's most been most motivating as a question in the last 20 years, uh, or even probably before that at university, was how do you build a life? You know, what is the art and science of living? Like to live well, to live wisely. Uh, that I would think if that is the underlying deep uh, well of, of water that kind of I draw from as a, as a motivator and an inspiration day to day. Some days or some weeks, I might not reconnect with that question or those materials that might, as you say, maybe I would not maybe miss a few days of reflection or contemplation or meditation. But basically that question is what is my deep motivator as a life question. And I express it in different ways. I express it as an entrepreneur. I express it now as an investor or building the foundation or being a father. Um, but if I lost all those things, I would go back to the passion and the curiosity of, well, what is this, what is this question and how do you live up to it? Because it is the, you know, the only question that's really been asked forever. 
other than the question of like, is there a God and why are we here? And I think they're kind of related. They're mm. kind of related. You have to make your own framework uh, if you don't subscribe to one that exists and you're not religious of any particular form, which I wasn't and I didn't grow up in that way. Uh, you have to, I think, build a picture of what's your perception of what this is all about at the biggest stage. And then what's the, your perception of what your role in that is? And therefore what, you know, what your life means and how you give meaning to it. And that's one of the motivators as to why uh, I'm studying theology and religion, because I think those traditions uh, for all the goods and bads for thousands of years have tried to answer those questions. And I'm one of those people who is always happy to learn about someone who has very different or opposing views and never hold judgment. And, and you know, I, until I can learn as much as I can and have multiple different ideas at the same time. So I love learning about all the philosophies and traditions because I think there's a huge amount of wisdom in them. Of course, there's lots of issues everywhere around all those things, but there's lots of other things too. There's practices, there's rituals, there's ways to give meaning, there's ways to pass time when good things happen, when bad things happen. There's ways to build community and uh, contribute. And that's what has driven me to continue to learn more. And that's why also I created Wiser Conversations last year as a conversation series in the pandemic to talk to people who spent their lives thinking about these issues from all backgrounds, whether it's psychology or Buddhism or any kind of aspect, what wisdom could they share as we all went through this, you know, really strange time um, and the psychology of it, the spirituality of it. So whenever I'm stressed or kind of not quite attached or hinged, I go back to readings or thinking or meditation uh, or walk, things like that to reconnect me to a sense of um, wisdom maybe a sense of awe, a, sense, a question of perception and perspective. I think all of these things help make your small day-to-day -day problems, you know, really, really tiny. And you realize how fortunate, you know, you are to be here mm. and that uh, we each have an opportunity to make, make, make of it what we will. Yeah, that's, um, that's uh, well said and thought provoking. On the, on the last piece about, um, you know, a sense of awe or, uh, you know, the power of now or kind of how small we are, um, there, there's a, a practice described in, I think, one of Tim Ferriss's books on uh, stargazing, essentially, that whenever you're, you're feeling the, the weight of the world kind of on your shoulders, look, it sounds pretty simple, but going outside and looking up and you kind of think, oh, wow, so I am, I am ridiculously tiny. <laughs> and maybe my problems are not as grand uh, as they seem. But look, that's, that's easier said for some problems. Yeah, than others, yes. but I, I I certainly find that helpful. Um, Me too. And often it's it's seeing uh, our our friend Orion that darn belt. It's pretty hard to miss, no matter what where you are in the world. Um, I think I've seen Orion many times, being like, "Okay, there there he is again. I'm pretty tiny. Maybe I should smile <laughs> yeah. versus frown right now." Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that, and I think it's very very true. Well, that 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 kind of leads to a related question that I I like to ask uh, guests, which is around, uh, you know, daily, weekly, whatever, you know, habits, routines. I think you you alluded to a few uh, just now, but anything you you can elaborate on? Look, this is this is hard and exciting, right? To to build things or to have the conviction to back, you know, certain certain companies. What gives you I don't know clarity, resilience, et cetera. In terms of again habits, I wonder, Derek. Hmm. So I've I've been someone who's struggled a lot to maintain habits. I've always thought of myself as someone. Oh, I can 
I'm going to be really disciplined and I'm going to continue, you know, really keep up with these habits. I've got these five things I'm going to do every day. And over the last five years, I just constantly like get up, get something going and then fall off again. And, you know, I have a couple of like coaches that I've worked with for many years and I've said, we've got to work on this. We've got to work on this. And it, I always fall off the wagon. Um, but my ideal world, and I have now, I'm, I'm doing pretty good this year. I'm about like 140 days in a row. I try to do three things. One, uh, I have a little bench in our bathroom. And after I have a shower, I sit there and, and I do a meditation or breathing, um, either listening to something or silent. And that that really helps. And I've been doing that now uh, every day for, for a while, for half a year, which has been very, very good. And I like being able to keep it up. I, um, I also read a page, could be a page, two pages, three pages, just five minutes, maybe 10 minutes of something that takes me to that other world that you just spoke of. It could be contemplative. It could be a, a spiritual text. It could be, uh, it could be, um, I have this book called Wisdom, which is essentially, it's like two pages. It's this beautiful, like coffee table book. It's got amazing people in it. And you just kind of flick a page and you read about someone and how they've thought about the world. Um, so that little bit of reading takes me out of the day to day and moves me into the kind of changes your time horizon to like, you know, it just takes it out of the day to day into this really long space and really high up. Like, what are we, what are we working on here as, as, as humans? And then I go back down into the day to day and I have basically, what are the, what are things I'm going to do today? And I use, you know, Stephen Covey, the productivity guy from the eighties, there's this video on the internet where he talks about rocks and pebbles. And I just love this framework. He has this illustration where he has a big, he has a big glass container and he tries to get someone to put all the rocks and pebbles in. Mm. You put all the pebbles in first. It, it's apparent that you can't put the big rocks in. And then you figure it out, you put the rocks in first, you can get all the pebbles in. So I, I have a little notebook. I divide it into two. On the left, I write what are the rocks. And there's maybe three, four for the day. Like if there's more than that, they're not really a rock. And then on the right, I have all the pebbles. And I know I'm never going to finish them all because this never happens that way. But as long as I can knock the, the rocks off, it's a successful day. Um, and that I do every day. And I think that's what keeps me you know, aligned. And then every few months, I make sure that I'm looking at the longer term plan uh, to make sure that you know, all the pieces are, are moving together. And then hopefully once a year over the summer, I kind of look out, okay, what's happening in the next three, five years? And what am I trying, what am I trying to do? Although I've just read that that's better to be done in winter because uh, <laughs> it's like animals store and hibernate and you know it's, ah. it's you kind of in it's an in, inward thing it's a reflection thing and summer is like you're out outward you're out in, in the sun and the beach and I, it started to make sense to me because in summer i was like i don't want to be sitting here on my notebook i should be out there so i think i might switch up the seasons i have this idea this dream to live seasonally like mm. animals like nature i have to think about how that's actually how that actually works but I wonder if we as people actually are designed to live seasonally, um, how that how that might manifest in our lives. Mm. Well, that's a lot of super practical uh, uh, advice or suggestions of sort. I, I would just say on the seasonality, you know, summer versus winter for uh, reflection. Um, uh, I've kind of picked neither in the following in the following regard. So I've got a birthday coming up in. Uh, when October and I was looking for a place for my daughter and I to go uh, camping and while I was doing that I came across this like homemade recycled basically like hermit's cabin you know in the middle of the woods um, in in the Appalachians 
And I said, wow, that is perfect. So I, my wife and Pamela said, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want to go on a silent retreat in this tiny, rustic, you know, cabin. Anyway, so it's the fall, not winter uh, or summer, but we'll see what not talking for two and a half days means. That um, sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah, I don't think we've I don't think we've got enough of those uh, places. This is another question I'm very curious. Mm. Of. Um, I have done a variety of them and they're often attached to a particular faith like a particular religion and they're happy to take you in but i think that uh we do need lots more spaces like that that are just secular or just non they're just whatever anyone can come and use them but they're built in a sense that uh they're designed for this purpose um and there's actually a company in australia that's building a network of cabins like this i can't remember mm. the name of it but it's quite a, quite a cool idea i really love it i would like to do something like that in new zealand um designed really much for the purpose that you said uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I wrote down three of the things. Um, you mentioned uh, you've been doing uh, that list of things for, I think, 140 days. And it reminds me of, um, of uh, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, the comic. He, he talked about, well, you know, how, how do I become a great comic? Well, I, I, I practice my craft every single day. I write a joke every single day. And, and to keep me on that process, I, I use a, the, the kind of streak method right calendar put an axe by the day and don't break the streak which i think is a such a simple way to do it but 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 very practical uh your your example of reading kind of a you know a few pages per day i think also great advice where we often feel like you know if we're going to do something you know helpful or insightful or productive it's got to be like whatever journal for an hour or something which is totally not sustainable and I think it's the 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 kind of BJ Fogg, you know, Stanford behavioral psychologist, tiny habits idea of no, make it as tiny as possible, and you're likely to stick to it, right? Um, well, that's where I ended up because yeah. years and years of trying to do too much and then failing mm. to keep up the streak mm. was uh, was where I ended up. Kind of as you iterate and iterate and iterate, you're like, okay, it has to be small enough that you can just do it. So dipping in and out of a book. You can do that for a minute and it sounds ridiculous, but a minute might be a few paragraphs. It's enough to glean something different to set the tone for your day. And most often or not than not, I get into a little bit more. Maybe it's five minutes. Sometimes it'll be 10. But what I've learned is just a few minutes is enough to move you into a different framework. And if it's small enough, it's very, it's much easier to stick with it. And previously, I tried to cram in too many things that took too long. And then when you when you get behind in your day, you're like one thing mm. falls, and the next thing falls, and the whole thing collapses, and it doesn't necessarily feel good. So I think the streak thing is really, uh, really helping by having little bite-sized, you know, approaches to these things. Yeah, right on. Yeah, and another book just for for listeners is um, the Slight Edge book, where it's talking about at least in, in terms of reading. It's like, look, if you read ten pages a day. It's 3,650 pages a year, which sounds like a monstrous amount. But guess what? It's the slight edge. What do you do consistently a little bit that over time matters, you know, matters a whole lot. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, in terms of knowledge and learning about things, podcasts like this um, are amazing. And I've also used, I use Audible a lot, which mm. is, uh, you know, the Audible books from Amazon, et cetera. And 
I, 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 I do a lot of them at fast, like, you know, yeah. 2X, the speed. <laughs> and that sounds a bit crazy, but if it's something that I just want to have awareness of, that's okay. If it's something I'm going to do a deep thinking exercise of, then I almost always buy the physical book or I Kindle it because I write all over them. So there are different types of learning and uh, exposure that I have. Sometimes it's more like peripheral, cool, it's on in the background and I churn through it. And the other side, it's the absolute opposite. And I might take you know 10 minutes just to go through a page because I write all over the page and I write my notes and, and, and diagrams and things like that. But it doesn't mean I have to read every book that way. Um, it doesn't mean I have to listen to every podcast, you know, at, at 2X or 1X, uh, just choose horses, horses for courses. Mm. Yeah, I, I often feel like a, a bit of a Luddite because mo most of the books I consume, I want the hard copy to do just what you said, you know, to underline things so that, you know, when I go pull a book off the shelf, I can look at the 5% I underlined and be like, oh yeah, well, that was pretty damn, you know, powerful for me. Yeah, uh, that's a huge part of how I, how I read books. Also, I think the brain... I don't know all the science behind it, but I can definitely work through a book when I'm looking for something much faster than if I'm trying to go through a Kindle, trying to find what was that page, what was that diagram, or what's the sense of this book again? If I just pull it off my shelf, I can spend five or 10 minutes, go through the different, you know, folded, what do you call yep. them, earmarks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like, okay, that's right. That's what that was about. You know, after many years of using Kindles and the bookmark notes and all stuff, it's just totally different. So I think it's a different format for how you experience uh, the written or visual, uh, uh, you know, content. And I don't, I continue to buy um, hard copy books and, and I don't think I'll ever stop. I think that's fundamentally a different format and experience for me that's really, really important. Well, we're, we're, we're about at time, uh, uh, Derek, uh, unless you want to go on for next, the next two hours. Um, I wonder... <laughs> I wonder as an entrepreneur, well, I mean, look, you're still an entrepreneur, albeit, you know, in the investor form. Um, what, what, what might be some closing advice for the entrepreneurs uh, that are listening, either as they think about their path as visionaries, right? Balancing get or done with what's the right thing uh, to, be, to be doing um, and or thinking about, look, you know, I've got to raise capital from the right, the right parties. Now that, that's a, a couple of books worth of, of comments you could make, but what, what might, might be some highlights to, to wrap here on, Derek? Well, for founders, I think um, it's, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be a founder, right? There's more capital than ever. There's more problems than ever, i.e. E. opportunities. The scale of them is so big. Uh, the ability to be global from, the, from early on is, is, it is like now, it has never been like this before. So the base level is um, amazing time to be a founder. And I think particularly the type of stuff you and I look at, amazing time to be a visionary founder with bold, bold dreams. People will be taking huge bets on extraordinary aspirations to tackle some of these challenges. So I think at the, at the outset, if, you know, for me, building a company is a if you're serious, it's at least a 10 year thing, right? It's not something you come in and come out and you think you're gonna get out the other side in a few years. So when you're gonna convince yourself to spend that amount of time on something, you wanna make sure that it's absolutely worth the journey and it's worth, the problem is worth uh, solving uh, that you're gonna love doing it in five years or seven years. So fu fundamentally, number one is make sure the vision is big enough and motivating enough that you think you'll still be motivated at year seven, eight, nine, and 10. Um, that's, I think, what gives the ground 
that the firm ground for you to build something extraordinary. You know, when we met the founders of Solugen, they had one chemical, they were focusing on decarbonizing hydrogen peroxide. Very quickly, they had a vision to decarbonize the chemicals industry, which is a totally different play. It's like, we want to build a generational company. And it's that kind of vision that I think makes people sit up and take notice and go, wow, we understand you've got a long way to go, but you've got a wedge, it makes sense. This is a great wedge, which is kind of part two. If you have a big vision, that's amazing, but you need the wedge. What's the wedge that's gonna be your first step towards that vision? And how can people be convinced that you can execute on that wedge? I think it's the combination of those two things that give people the runway to build something incredible. Amazing wedge, which is highly differentiated, solving real problem that we can execute on and deliver soon. But actually this bigger problem that we're looking at, which is just a sub-circle of a much larger circle. If, if an investor or founder or a team gets convinced of both those things, I think you can become unstoppable. I love it. Um, that's a great, a great place to stop. Uh, Derek, we're, I can say we, we are all excited to see uh, the next you know, companies that you guys fund and future kind of outgrowths of, uh, of the foundation. And, and, and I think as we would say here in the States, um, you, you're like a brother from another mother. So when, when you're stateside, let's, I can't yeah. wait to. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, man, we'll, we'll call it a day uh, right cool. here. Thanks, Onward Chris. Upward. You got it, man. Hope that was good for you. I really Thank you for listening to The Torch from Entrepreneurs for Impact. If you'd like to learn more about climate finance and startups, I write a weekly newsletter called Zero, which you can find in the footer of our website, entrepreneursforimpact.com. In these, I also write about personal development and conscious leadership with questionable attempts at humor. Finally, if you or someone you know might benefit from joining a private cohort for post-accelerator growth stage climate CEOs, presidents, and investors, then schedule a call at our website. Our year-long peer-to-peer advisory programs plus executive coaching with just 10 to 15 executives helps members make better decisions, scale their businesses more quickly, be held accountable to their top personal and professional goals, create more time in their day, motivate their teams, and work on, not just in, their venture. Plus, we've got a member-only climate investor database with 550-plus corporate and project investors to help leaders become more investment savvy. Until next time, remember this. We need more than $1 trillion invested per year to hit our climate goals. And big problems mean big opportunities. So if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? All right, y'all, let's get to work.